Chapter Three of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. One. Under the rolling clouds of the prairie, a moving mass of steel, an irritable clank and rattle beneath a prolonged roar, the sharp scent of oranges cutting the soggy smell of unbathed people and ancient baggage. Towns as planless as a scattering of pasteboard boxes on an attic floor. The stretch of faded gold stubble broken only by clumps of willows encircling white houses and red barns. Number seven, the way train, grumbling through Minnesota, imperceptibly climbing the giant tableland that slopes in a thousand-mile rise from hot Mississippi bottoms to the Rockies. It is September, hot, very dusty. There is no smug pullman attached to the train, and the day-coaches of the East are replaced by free-chair cars, with each seat cut into two adjustable plush chairs, the headrests covered with doubtful linen towels. Halfway down the car is a semi-partition of carved oak columns, but the aisle is of bare, splintery, grease-blackened wood. There is no porter, no pillows, no provision for beds. But all today and all tonight they will ride in this long steel box, farmers with perpetually tired wives and children who seem all to be of the same age, workmen going to new jobs, traveling salesmen with derbies and freshly shined shoes. They are parched and cramped, the lines of their hands filled with grime. They go to sleep curled in distorted attitudes heads against the window-panes, or propped on rolled coats on seat-arms, and legs thrust into the aisle. They do not read. Apparently, they do not think. They wait. An early-wrinkled young old mother, moving as though her joints were dry, opens a suitcase in which are seen creased blouses, a pair of slippers worn through at the toes, a bottle of patent medicine, a tin cup, a paper-covered book about dreams which the news-butcher has coaxed her into buying. She brings out a graham cracker which she feeds to a baby lying flat on a seat and wailing hopelessly. Most of the crumbs drop on the red plush of the seat, and the woman sighs and tries to brush them away, but they leap up impishly and fall back on the plush. A soiled man and woman munch sandwiches and throw the crusts on the floor. A large, brick-colored Norwegian takes off his shoes, grunts in relief, and props his feet in their thick gray socks against the seat in front of him. An old woman, whose toothless mouth shuts like a mud-turtle's, and whose hair is not so much white as yellow like moldy linen, with bands of pink skull apparent between the tresses, anxiously lifts her bag, opens it, peers in, closes it, puts it under the seat and hastily picks it up and opens it and hides it all over again. The bag is full of treasures and of memories—a leather buckle, an ancient band-concert program, scraps of ribbon, lace, satin. In the aisle beside her is an extremely indignant parakeet in a cage. Two facing seats, overflowing with a Slovene iron-miner's family, are littered with shoes, dolls, whiskey-bottles, bundles wrapped in newspapers a sewing-bag. The oldest boy takes a mouth-organ out of his coat-pocket, wipes the tobacco-crumbs off, and plays, marching through Georgia, till every head in the car begins to ache. 
the newsbutcher comes through selling chocolate bars and lemon drops. A girl-child ceaselessly trots down to the water-cooler and back to her seat. The stiff paper envelope which she uses for cup drips in the aisle as she goes, and on each trip she stumbles over the feet of a carpenter who grunts, "'Ouch! Look out!' The dust-cake doors are open, and from the smoking-car drifts back a visible blue line of stinging tobacco-smoke and with it a crackle of laughter over the story which the young man in the bright blue suit and lavender tie and light yellow shoes has just told to the squat man in garage overalls. The smell grows constantly thicker, more stale. 2. To each of the passengers his seat was his temporary home, and most of the passengers were slatternly housekeepers. But one seat looked clean and deceptively cool. In it were an obviously prosperous man and a black-haired, fine-skinned girl, whose pumps rested on an immaculate horsehide bag. They were Dr. Will Kennicott and his bride, Carol. They had been married at the end of a year of conversational courtship, and they were on their way to Gopher Prairie after a wedding journey in the Colorado mountains. The hordes of the way-train were not altogether new to Carol. She had seen them on trips from St. Paul to Chicago. But now that they had become her own people, to bathe and encourage and adorn, she had an acute and uncomfortable interest in them. They distressed her. They were so stolid. She had always maintained that there is no American peasantry, and she sought now to defend her faith by seeing imagination and enterprise in the young Swedish farmers, and in a traveling man working over his order-blanks. But the older people, Yankees as well as Norwegians, Germans, Finns, Canucks, had settled into submission to poverty. They were peasants, she groaned. Isn't there any way of waking them up? What would happen if they understood scientific agriculture? She begged of Kennicott, her hand groping for his. It had been a transforming honeymoon. She had been frightened to discover how tumultuous a feeling could be roused in her. Will had been lordly, stalwart, jolly, impressively competent in making camp. Tender and understanding through the hours when they had lain side by side in a tent pitched among pines, high up on a lonely mountain spur. His hand swallowed hers as he started from thoughts of the practice to which he was returning. These people? Wake em up? What for? They're happy. But they're so provincial. No, that isn't what I mean. They're, oh, so sunk in the mud. Look here, Carrie. You want to get over your city idea that because a man's pants aren't pressed, he's a fool. These farmers are mighty keen and up and coming. I know. That's what hurts. Life seems so hard for them, these lonely farms and this gritty train. Oh, they don't mind it. Besides, things are changing. The auto, the telephone, rural free delivery. They're bringing the farmers in closer touch with the town. Takes time, you know, to change a wilderness like this was fifty years ago. But already, why, they can hop into the Ford or the Overland and get into the movies on Saturday evening quicker than you could get down to them by trolley in St. Paul. But... If it's these towns we've been passing that the farmers run to for relief from their bleakness, can't you understand? Just look at them." 
Kennicott was amazed. Ever since childhood he had seen these towns from trains on this same line. He grumbled, "'Why, what's the matter with them? Good hustling bergs. It would astonish you to know how much wheat and rye and corn and potatoes they ship in a year.' "'But they're so ugly.' "'I'll admit they aren't comfy like Gopher Prairie, but give them time.' What's the use of giving them time unless someone has desire and training enough to plan them? Hundreds of factories trying to make attractive motor-cars, but these towns left to chance. No, that can't be true. It must have taken genius to make them so scrawny." "'Oh, they're not so bad,' was all he answered. He pretended that his hand was the cat and hers the mouse. For the first time she tolerated him rather than encouraged him. She was staring out at Schoenstrom, a hamlet of perhaps a hundred and fifty inhabitants, at which the train was stopping. A bearded German and his pucker-mouthed wife tugged their enormous imitation-leather satchel from under a seat and waddled out. The station agent hoisted a dead calf aboard the baggage car. There were no other visible activities in Schoenstrom. In the quiet of the halt, Carol could hear a horse kicking his stall, a carpenter shingling a roof. The business center of Schoenstrom took up one side of one block, facing the railroad. It was a row of one-story shops covered with galvanized iron, or with clabberds painted red and bilious yellow. The buildings were as ill-assorted, as temporary-looking, as a mining-camp street in the motion pictures. The railroad station was a one-room frame box a miry cattle-pen on one side and a crimson weed elevator on the other. The elevator, with its cupola on the ridge of a shingled roof, resembled a broad-shouldered man with a small, vicious, pointed head. The only habitable structures to be seen were the florid red-brick Catholic church and rectory at the end of Main Street. Carol picked at Kennicott's sleeve. "'You wouldn't call this a not-so-bad town, would you?' These Dutch bergs are kind of slow. Still, at that. See that fellow coming out of the general store there, getting into the big car? I met him once. He owns about half the town, besides the store. Rosskuckle his name is. He owns a lot of mortgages, and he gambles in farmlands. Good nut on him, that fellow. Why, they say he's worth three or four hundred thousand dollars got a dandy great big yellow brick house with tiled walks and a garden and everything other end of town. Can't see it from here. I've gone past it when I've driven through here. Yes, sir." Then, if he has all that, there's no excuse whatever for this place. If his three hundred thousand went back into the town where it belongs, they could burn up these shacks and build a dream village, a jewel. Why do the farmers and the town people let the baron keep it? I must say, I don't quite get you sometimes, Carrie. Let him? They can't help themselves. He's a dumb old Dutchman, and probably the priest can twist him around his finger, but when it comes to picking good farming land, he's a regular whiz. I see. He's their symbol of beauty. The town erects him instead of erecting buildings. Honestly, don't know what you're driving at. You're kind of played out after this long trip. You'll feel better when you get home and have a good bath and put on the blue negligee. That's some vampire costume, you witch." He squeezed her arm, looked at her knowingly. 
They moved on from the desert stillness of the Schoenstrom station. The train creaked, banged, swayed. The air was nauseatingly thick. Kennicott turned her face from the window, rested her head on his shoulder. She was coaxed from her unhappy mood. But she came out of it unwillingly, and when Kennicott was satisfied that he had corrected all her worries and had opened a magazine of saffron detective stories, she sat upright. Here, she meditated, is the newest empire of the world, the northern Middle West, a land of dairy herds and exquisite lakes, of new automobiles and tar-paper shanties and silos like red towers, of clumsy speech and a hope that is boundless. An empire which feeds a quarter of the world, yet its work is merely begun. They are pioneers, these sweaty wayfarers, for all their telephones and bank accounts and automatic pianos and cooperative leagues. And for all its fat richness, theirs is a pioneer land. What is its future, she wondered? A future of cities and factory smut, where now are loping empty fields? Homes universal and secure? Or placid chateaux ringed with sullen huts? Youth free to find knowledge and laughter? Willingness to sift the sanctified lies? Or creamy-skinned fat women, smeared with grease and chalk, gorgeous in the skins of beasts and the bloody feathers of slain birds, playing bridge with puffy, pink-nailed, jeweled fingers, women who, after much expenditure of labor and bad temper, still grotesquely resemble their own flatulent lapdogs. The ancient stale inequalities or something different in history, unlike the tedious maturity of other empires. What future and what hope?" Carol's head ached with the riddle. She saw the prairie, flat in giant patches or rolling in long hummocks. The width and bigness of it, which had expanded her spirit an hour ago, began to frighten her. It spread out so, it went on so uncontrollably. She could never know it. Kennicott was closeted in his detective story. With the loneliness which comes most depressingly in the midst of many people, she tried to forget problems, to look at the prairie objectively. The grass beside the railroad had been burned over. It was a smudge prickly with charred stalks of weeds. Beyond the undeviating barbed-wire fences were clumps of golden rod. Only this thin hedge shut them off from the plains shorn wheatlands of autumn, a hundred acres to a field, prickly and gray nearby, but in the blurred distance, like tawny velvet stretched over dipping hillocks. The long rows of wheat-shocks marched like soldiers in worn yellow tabards. The newly plowed fields were black banners fallen on the distant slope. It was a martial immensity, vigorous, a little harsh, unsoftened by kindly gardens. The expanse was relieved by clumps of oaks with patches of short wild grass, and every mile or two was a chain of cobalt sloughs, with the flicker of blackbird's wings across them. All this working land was turned into exuberance by the light. The sunshine was dizzy on open stubble. Shadows from immense cumulus clouds were forever sliding across low mounds and the sky was wider and loftier and more resolutely blue than the sky of cities," she declared. "'It's a glorious country, a land to be big in,' she crooned. 
Then Kennicott startled her by chuckling, "'Do you realize the town after the next is Gopher Prairie? Home!' 3. That one word, home, it terrified her. Had she really bound herself to live, inescapably, in this town called Gopher Prairie? And this thick man beside her, who dared to define her future, he was a stranger. She turned in her seat, stared at him. Who was he? Why was he sitting with her? He wasn't of her kind. His neck was heavy, his speech was heavy, he was twelve or thirteen years older than she, and about him was none of the magic of shared adventures and eagerness. She could not believe that she had ever slept in his arms. That was one of the dreams which you had, but did not officially admit. She told herself how good he was, how dependable and understanding. She touched his ear, smoothed the plane of his solid jaw, and, turning away again, concentrated upon liking his town. It wouldn't be like these barren settlements. It couldn't be. Why, it had three thousand population. That was a great many people. There would be six hundred houses or more. And the lakes near it would be so lovely. She'd seen them in the photographs. They had looked charming, hadn't they? As the train left Joaquinian, she began nervously to watch for the lakes, the entrance to all her future life. But when she discovered them, to the left of the track, her only impression of them was that they resembled the photographs. A mile from Gopher Prairie the track mounts a curving low ridge, and she could see the town as a whole. With a passionate jerk she pushed up the window, looked out, the arched fingers of her left hand trembling on the sill, her right hand at her breast. And she saw that Gopher Prairie was merely an enlargement of all the hamlets which they had been passing. Only to the eyes of a Kennicott was it exceptional. The huddled low wooden houses broke the plains scarcely more than would a hazel thicket. The field swept up to it, past it. It was unprotected and unprotecting. There was no dignity in it nor any hope of greatness. Only the tall red grain elevator and a few tinny church steeples rose from the mass. It was a frontier camp. It was not a place to live in, not possibly not conceivably. The people, they'd be as drab as their houses, as flat as their fields. She couldn't stay here. She would have to wrench loose from this man and flee. She peeped at him. She was at once helpless before his mature fixity, and touched by his excitement as he sent his magazine skittering along the aisle, stooped for their bags, came up with flushed face and gloated, "'Here we are!' She smiled loyally and looked away. The train was entering town. The houses on the outskirts were dusky old red mansions with wooden frills, or gaunt frame shelters like grocery boxes, or new bungalows with concrete foundations imitating stone. Now the train was passing the elevator, the grim storage tanks for oil, a creamery, a lumber yard, a stockyard muddy and trampled and stinking. Now they were stopping at a squat red-frame station, the platform crowded with unshaven farmers and with loafers, unadventurous people with dead eyes. She was here. She could not go on. It was the end, the end of the world. She sat with closed eyes, longing to push past Kennicott, 
hide somewhere in the train, flee on toward the Pacific. Something large arose in her soul and commanded, Stop it! Stop being a whining baby! She stood up quickly, she said, Isn't it wonderful to be here at last? He trusted her so. She would make herself like the place, and she was going to do tremendous things. She followed Kennicott and the bobbing ends of the two bags which he carried. They were held back by the slow line of disembarking passengers. She reminded herself that she was actually at the dramatic moment of the bride's homecoming. She ought to feel exalted. She felt nothing at all except irritation at their slow progress toward the door. Kennicott stooped to peer through the windows. He shyly exulted. Look, look! There's a bunch come down to welcome us! Sam Clark and the missus, and Dave Dyer and Jack Elder, and yes, sir, Harry Haydock and Juanita, and a whole crowd. I guess they see us now. Yeah, yeah, sure, they see us. See him waving? She obediently bent her head to look out at them. She had hold of herself. She was ready to love them. But she was embarrassed by the hardiness of the cheering group. From the vestibule she waved to them but she clung a second to the sleeve of the brakeman, who helped her down before she had the courage to dive into the cataract of handshaking people, people whom she could not tell apart. She had the impression that all the men had coarse voices, large damp hands, toothbrush mustaches, bald spots, and masonic watch-charms. She knew that they were welcoming her. Their hands, their smiles, their shouts, their affectionate eyes overcame her. She stammered, "'Thank you! Oh, thank you!' One of the men was clamoring at Kennicott. "'I brought my machine down to take you home, Doc!' "'Fine business, Sam!' cried Kennicott. And to Carol, "'Let's jump in! That big page over there! Some boat, too, believe me! Sam can show speed to any of these marmons from Minneapolis!' Only when she was in the motor-car did she distinguish the three people who were to accompany them. The owner, now at the wheel, was the essence of decent self-satisfaction. A baldish, largish, level-eyed man, rugged of neck but sleek and round of face, face like the back of a spoon-bowl. He was chuckling at her. "'Have you got us all straight yet?' "'Course she has. Trust Carrie to get things straight and get em darn quick. I bet she could tell you every date in history,' boasted her husband. But the man looked at her reassuringly, and with a certainty that he was a person whom she could trust, she confessed, "'As a matter of fact, I haven't got anybody straight.' "'Course you haven't, child. Well, I'm Sam Clark, dealer in hardware, sporting goods, cream separators, and almost any kind of heavy junk you can think of. You can call me Sam. Anyway, I'm going to call you Carrie. Seeing as you've been and gone and married this poor fish of a bum medic that we keep round here." Carol smiled lavishly and wished that she called people by their given names more easily. "'The fat, cranky lady back there beside you, who is pretending that she can't hear me giving her away, is Mrs. Samuel Clark, and this hungry-looking squirt up here beside me is Dave Dyer, who keeps his drug store running by not filling your hubby's prescriptions right. Fact. You might say he's the guy that put the shun in prescription. So, well, leave us take the bonnie bride home. Say, Doc, I'll sell you the Canterson place for three thousand plunks. 
Better be thinking about building a new home for Carrie. Prettiest frau in G.P., if you asks me." Contentedly, Sam Clark drove off in the heavy traffic of Three Fords and the Minamashi House free bus. I shall like Mr. Clark. I can't call him Sam. They're all so friendly. She glanced at the houses, tried not to see what she saw, gave way in. Why do these stories lie so? They always make the bride's homecoming a bower of roses, complete trust in noble spouse, lies about marriage. I'm not changed. And this town, oh, my God, I can't go through with it. This junk heap. Her husband bent over her. You look like you were in a brown study. Scared? I don't expect you to think Gopher Prairie is a paradise, after St. Paul. I don't expect you to be crazy about it at first. But you'll come to like it so much. Life's so free here, and best people on earth." She whispered to him, while Mrs. Clark considerately turned away, "'I love you for understanding. I'm just—I'm beastly oversensitive. Too many books. It's my lack of shoulder muscles and sense. Give me time, dear.' "'You bet. All the time you want.' She laid the back of his hand against her cheek, snuggled near him. She was ready for her new home. Kennicott had told her that, with his widowed mother as housekeeper, he had occupied an old house. But nice and roomy, and well heated, best furnace I could find on the market. His mother had left Carol her love and gone back to Lac Wamur. It would be wonderful, she exulted, not to have to live in other people's houses, but to make her own shrine. She held his hand tightly and stared ahead as the car swung round a corner and stopped in the street before a prosaic frame house in a small parched lawn. 4. A concrete sidewalk with a parking of grass and mud. A square smug brown house, rather damp. A narrow concrete walk up to it. Sickly yellow leaves in a window with dried wings of box-elder seeds and snags of wool from the cottonwoods a screened porch with pillars of thin painted pine surmounted by scrolls and brackets and bumps of jigsawed wood. No shrubbery to shut off the public gaze. A lugubrious bay window to the right of the porch. Window curtains of starched cheap lace revealing a pink marble table with a conch shell and a family Bible. You'll find it old-fashioned, what do you call it, mid-Victorian. I left it as is so you could make any changes you felt were necessary." Kennicott sounded doubtful for the first time since he had come back to his own. "'It's a real home!' She was moved by his humility. She gaily motioned goodbye to the Clarks. He unlocked the door. He was leaving the choice of a maid to her, and there was no one in the house. She jiggled while he turned the key and scampered in. It was next day before either of them remembered that in their honeymoon camp they had planned that he should carry her over the sill. In hallway and front parlor she was conscious of dinginess and lugubriousness and airlessness, but she insisted, I'll make it all jolly. As she followed Kennicott and the bags up to their bedroom she quavered to herself the song of the fat little gods of the hearth. I have my own home, to do what I please with to do what I please with, 
my den for me and my mate and my cubs, my own. She was close in her husband's arms. She clung to him. Whatever of strangeness and slowness and insularity she might find in him, none of that mattered so long as she could slip her hands beneath his coat, run her fingers over the warm smoothness of the satin back of his waistcoat, seem almost to creep into his body, find in him strength, find in the courage and kindness of her man a shelter from the perplexing world. "'Sweet, so sweet,' she whispered. End of chapter 3